So we are now 26 days into this new year. And personally, I've spent most of them sick in one way or another, came down with what I'm pretty sure was the flu on the second day of the year. And I mean, it has some long fingernails, right? It was hanging on for a long time, right? You feel miserable the first few days. And then the next week, it's like, I'm feeling better, but you got that nagging cough. And then the nagging cough goes away. And now your throat still just doesn't seem quite right. And I say that not to you know, gain sympathy, but to say that because I know there's a lot of you in this room that can relate. Uh, there has been some stuff going around, and I know in our church, in our community, and, and even just if you or anybody in your family has been sick over the last month, raise, raise your hand. If you or anybody, right, most of the room has their hands in the air. There, there's been some illness going around. It's that time of year, right? Well, along with that, as the illness goes around, that means there's another thing that starts going around, and that is everybody, we start acting like we all have MDs and start dispensing our medical advice to everyone else, right? Oh, you're starting to feel bad. Have you, you know, gargled with this? Or have you tried taking this? Or have you tried diffusing this, right? Or eating this, you know, whatever it might be, we, we start spreading our suggestions to others as to our little home remedies that we think might be helpful. And I think we've all done that from time to time. We've all been on the receiving end of it, right? And as for me, it's, you know, uh, it's like, I'm sick. Somebody's got a suggestion. What have I got to lose, right? I might as well try whatever they're saying. And sometimes you try it and you're like, well, that didn't make any difference. Or sometimes, you know, you do something that somebody suggests, and you're like, wow, I'm starting to feel a lot better. And, and maybe you start doing that, and then maybe you start passing it along to somebody else, right? But what's going to determine whether or not you are likely to pass on that home remedy to somebody else? How effective you really believe it to be? If it's something you just kind of do, and you're like, yeah, this probably isn't doing anything, you're probably not going to be texting your friend, hey, I heard you're sick. Try this. But when you believe, hey, this is actually going to make a difference, well, then you do. And yeah, there's been some sickness going around our, our church, but if you pay attention you know, to the news, there's some sickness starting to go around the world, right? You've heard about this coronavirus that you know, started in central China, right? And it seems kind of like a pretty nasty sickness. Over uh, 40 people have died from it, but even those that aren't, you know, it's, it sounds pretty rough. Even so much that the city where they think it, it started, they shut the whole thing down. Now, Imagine trying to shut down, lock down New York City, right? Eight million people, airports closed, subways closed. We're shutting it down, right? That seems like a huge undertaking to us, right? This city in China, Wuhan, it has 11 million people, right? Even more people than New York City does. And they're, they're shutting this down because they feel like this virus is, is, is such a big deal and so potentially harmful. Well, let's say you're, you're doing some, you know, chemistry and science in your, in your spare time, right? And you're at home today and you're like, hey, I heard of that thing and I've, I came up with the antibiotic. It's sitting in my freezer at home. I'm going to guess you're not going to sit on that, right? I'm going to guess you're going to start making some phone calls saying, hey, yeah, the coronavirus, I came up with the cure. I came up with the pill. You start taking this within 24 hours, you'll be, you'll be good as new again, right? You would start telling that to anybody who would listen, right? And as you can see, we're not going to be talking about home remedies and illness this morning. We're talking about Jesus Christ. And particularly, we're talking about how we as Christians, we want to pass on the word about Jesus Christ to others. 
But really, what's going to determine if we do that or not? It's going to come down to how effective do you think Jesus is? Is Jesus something you kind of try sometimes and I don't know if it really does anything? Or is it something you think, hey, it's helped me, it might help somebody else? Or is it what you think, you know, this is the cure. This is the answer and the world needs to know about it. What do you really think about Jesus? And we're going to see Jesus and who he really is this morning from John chapter 1. So please take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 42. John 1, 29 to 42. And what we're going to see last week, we talked about John the Baptist. And today John's going to kind of pass the baton, right? He's going to start pointing people to Jesus and in we're going to see the story shift from John the Baptist and what he's saying to Jesus and his disciples. But follow along. I'll just read the whole passage for us, and then we'll, we'll look at it together, starting in verse 29, John 1, 29. It says, The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that night, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the first thing I want you to look at in that passage we just read is verse 41, where it says he. It's talking about Andrew, one of the guys who's now spent time with Jesus. It says he first found his own brother. And even the sense in the original language there in the Greek of that word is kind of gives you the sense of the first thing Andrew did was he went and he found his brother, Peter, and he said, hey, we found the Messiah. You've got to come see this guy, Jesus. And one commentator summed it up perhaps as good as you can when he says that Andrew thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private, is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother, right? And many of you, this is, this is how you became a Christian. You had a friend or a relative or somebody that 
Jesus Christ got a hold of their life. They got saved, and then they started looking at the people around them, and they came and they found you, and they said, come and see. You need to come and see Jesus. You need to see what he is all about. And that's such a natural thing, especially when you see somebody give their life to Christ, right away they're on fire to tell other people about him. That they want other people to know who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's really the theme of, of this series as we're seeing this happen in the Gospel of John is, hey, that should be the same way for us. If we really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if we really believe that he is the cure, so to speak, for the ultimate sickness of mankind, then we should be telling people. And, and so what we want to do today is look at what this passage says about Jesus. The pattern is when somebody sees Jesus, they go out and they tell other people about him. But what the passage doesn't give us is, all right, here's a bunch of techniques on how to do that, right? What it does give us is this is a lot about who Jesus is. And the more we see who Jesus is, the more that should motivate us and empower us to tell other people about him. And so there are four different titles that are used for Jesus in this passage. And what we want to do is just look at them one at a time and see how these titles don't point back to ancient history and just abstract trivia facts, right? These titles referring to Jesus actually speak to all of our greatest needs and the greatest needs of everybody around us. So let's start by looking at the first title that comes up. We see it in verse 29 and then again in verses 35 and 36 when, G when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And he goes on to say, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's start by seeing that need. Lamb of God, it's speaking to what we should see. Write this down. See the need for forgiveness and cleansing. See the need for forgiveness and cleansing. Now, if you've come to church before, Lamb of God is probably a phrase you're familiar with. We sing it in songs. It's just become a part of our culture and of the church as we see it here. Now, it's a phrase, though, that the, the people then would not have been as familiar with specifically. This is the only time that exact phrase, Lamb of God, is used in the Bible. The phrase would not have been as familiar to them. However, the concept was very familiar to them. When, when he's saying, hey, this is the Lamb of God, that that's going to communicate things to the people that John was talking to. Usually, in the Jewish culture, the Lamb was associated with sacrifice in one way or another. I mean, and it goes all the way back to the earliest parts of Scripture, like Genesis chapter 22, which tells the famous story of when God tests Abraham. Do you remember that? He, he tests Abraham and he tells him, hey, take Isaac, this, only, this, this promised son, and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that's like, well, that's a shocking thing. And it says that Abraham, he rose up early in the morning and he went to obey, right? He gets his son, he gets his servants, and they, they head out. And there comes a moment where uh, Abraham takes his son. All right, servants, you stay here. We're going to go on now. And, and you can see Isaac, his son, you know, imagine him with an ancient little clipboard, you know, and a pencil. And he's like, uh, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, it, you know, where's, where's the sacrifice, right? We got the knife. I mean, where's the sacrifice? And I mean, like even 
especially dads in the room, you kind of get choked up at that point, like thinking about that part of the passage. And what Abraham says to his son is, hey, son, God will provide a lamb. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And ultimately, it ends up being a, a, a ram, but as Abraham is ready to do what God had told him to do, God says, stop, and there's a ram that's caught in the bushes. And that becomes the sacrifice that Abraham anticipated when he said God will provide the lamb. God's going to provide a substitute sacrifice in this situation. Probably the biggest thing that maybe they would have thought of with a lamb refers back to a feast that the Jewish people still celebrate to this day, the Feast of Passover, right? Which goes back to the book of Exodus. We all remember the ten plagues, even if you remember the Charlton Heston version, right? You remember the the, the, the ten plagues and these amazing things that God does. And remember the last one, a, a terrible thing, because Pharaoh will not listen. God says, last plague, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But, hey, Israelites, Jewish people, what I want you to do is to take a lamb. And it talks about the lamb even being without blemish. And I want you to kill the lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel. And the angel will see the blood and he will pass over the house, right? And that imagery of, of the lamb. And ultimately, even John is going to highlight that as we see when is Jesus crucified? During the Passover feast, right? We, we see that happen. We'll see it in the book of Leviticus when it's talking about the sin offerings. It talks about a lamb. Again, a lamb without blemish. And then as they would kill the lamb there with the priest, it says it will make atonement for sin. So even a sacrificial lamb being a part of the forgiveness process and atonement for sin. But I think where we see, especially now that we have the benefit of hindsight, this concept the most clearly is in Isaiah chapter 53. So I would like you to turn there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And we'll see even the word lamb, and we'll see still more this concept of sacrifice and substitution. Let's pick it up in in verse 3. And again, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that Isaiah is speaking about the coming Messiah. He is talking ultimately, even though he might not know it, about Jesus Christ. And it says he, referring to the future to Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now notice the language of substitution in these next few verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus here is presented 
as the ultimate sacrifice, as the substitute. And we start putting all of these pictures of the Old Testament together and see how they all have their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It always had to be a lamb without blemish, right? Jesus, the only one to ever live without sin. And the lamb would, would die kind of as a, as a substitute in the place of the person that had sinned. Jesus, he dies as a substitute for our sin. He is the Passover that when, when the wrath of God comes and sees the blood of Christ applied to our lives as Christians, the judgment of God passes over us. It all is fulfilled in Christ. And again, this isn't just, hey, this, that's kind of nice. No, it's, it's our need because every single one of us has a problem with sin. Every single one of us has missed the mark. That's what the Hebrew word for sin often literally means. We have missed the mark of what God has made us to do, and that creates a problem between us as sinful people and a holy and perfect God. And he knows all the things that we have ever done, that we have ever said, that we have ever thought. And someday we will stand before him as the judge. And if we really understand our sin, we realize that is a big problem. And that is where Jesus says, I will provide the solution. Because I will offer up myself as the sacrifice in your place. I mean, we can read Isaiah 53 and, and we can get rid even of some of those plural pronouns and look at this and say, hey, he's borne my griefs, my sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions and crushed for my iniquities. I was the sheep. I had gone astray and God laid my sin on him. That's good news. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ has died in our place. But that was hard for people to understand at the time. And even John, when John is saying he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, again, with the benefit of the hindsight and a complete New Testament, we probably understand that phrase even more than John the Baptist did. Because when he talks about taking away and even his picture of the Lamb, and sometimes we see Lamb even in Revelation, one of the favorite words for Jesus is Lamb as this coming you know, end times figure. That's who the Lamb was. And John very easily could have been thinking, hey, the Lamb of God, he's going to take away the sin of the world. And he might not have understood he's going to take away the sin of the world by dying in our place. He probably thought he's going to take away the sin of the world by judgment, right? Even so much, if you remember Matthew chapter 11, later in his life, John sends people to Jesus to ask Jesus, hey, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be waiting for someone else. Well, John seems so sure here. Later, there's a little bit of waver as he is uncertain, likely because he's like, um, where's the judgment? Where's all of this being dealt with? And many people didn't understand that the Messiah, as we'll talk about later, first offered himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. And even from the beginning, it was clear Jesus came to deal with our sin. The angel tells Joseph, you're going to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And everybody has that problem. You might think about your, your, your neighbors. They might come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Some of them are born and raised right here in Idaho. Some of them maybe came from another part of the country, probably California. And, uh, or some of them, maybe they came from a different country and, and one neighbor's a, a Mormon and the other one is just like a straight up hardcore 
atheist and the other one who knows what, what they think. They're just kind of, you know, chill average Joe Americans. And then you got a, a, a Catholic over here. And then I don't, I've never even seen that neighbor before, right? And they're all coming from different places. And sometimes that can be confusing because you're like, man, I don't even know what they all believe. Well, here's something that helps you out. They all have something in common. They all have a problem with sin, right? Every single one of them has missed the mark and every single one of them has to figure out how to make it right. And there's not a different answer for each of them. The answer for all of them is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He's the only one that can take away our sin. We can't do it by our works. We can't do it by just being moral people according to whatever the atheist thinks. It's only by Jesus Christ. And that's why I think even in our evangelism, as one evangelist I heard once said, lots of times we just want to go for the intellect, which again isn't bad, and giving them reasons for our faith. He says, look at Jesus. Most often, Jesus, he went for their conscience, right? He was trying to point on the fact, and lots of people, they know it deep down inside, I have missed the mark. And Jesus tried to help, again, gently, graciously help people see that they needed forgiveness so that he could point them to himself saying, I'm the one who can give it to you. And as we think about our evangelistic endeavors, we have to realize every single one of the people around us has the same sickness. It's sin, and there's only one cure. It's Jesus. And every single one of them needs it. And we need to share that with them. And in many ways, that gives you a leg up in the conversation because it doesn't matter what background they come from. They all have the same problem. But I know some of us here today, we've trusted in Christ. We're rejoicing in this. My sin is paid in full because of what Jesus Christ did. And I hope that spurs us on. But I'm also confident there's some of you right here in this room today that you're sensing your problem with sin. You realize you have guilt. You have shame over sin in your life. There's things that you're like, I hope nobody in this room ever finds out about me. And if they do, I'm out, right? Because I would be embarrassed. And you have to remember, you will stand before God someday and he knows it all. What are you going to do How are you going to be ready for that day? And the good news is Jesus is the lamb. He's the one that can take away your sin completely because he died in your place. And he calls you now to turn from your sin and put your faith in the lamb of God. He is the lamb of God. But it's more than about merely just forgiveness. And we see more of that as we move on in the text. So we pick it up in verse 30. And we see John talk about baptism. He talks about all these things. And it culminates in the next title we want to look at in verse 34, the Son of God. Now, that's a common title. Even look at this first John 20, uh, 31. It's the purpose of why he wrote the book. He says, hey, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Son of God was a messianic title. And we'll talk again more about the Messiah in a little bit. And what we need to see and what John shows clearly is that son of God is a title that doesn't make Jesus less than God, as many people in other religions might say. Son of God actually highlights that Jesus is equal with God. And that's something the people around Jesus, they understood that. That's what made them angry. And that's ultimately why they kill him, because he's making himself equal with God by calling himself the son of God. But I don't just want us to dig into that title and all the different ways it's used. I want us to look at the context. What leads John to call Jesus the Son of God? 
Again, picking it up in verse 30, we see a statement of Jesus' deity. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Again, John was born before Jesus. John started doing ministry before Jesus. How does that work? Jesus is eternal. Jesus existed before he was born. He existed forever. He was before John. Therefore, he ranks ahead of John. But then in these next few verses that we read, we kind of pick up on some interesting information that John had been commissioned by God to go prepare the way for this one who is coming. But John basically says, at first, I didn't know who that person was. All I knew is I need to go tell people to repent and make way, ready the way of the Lord. And that's what he started doing. But then it kind of says, God spoke to him again and said, hey, you're going to see the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and you're going to see it remain on someone. When you see that happen, that's the guy. That is the one that you've been talking to people about. And we, we see that in the other Gospels happen at the baptism of Christ. When John baptizes Jesus, the spirit descends like a dove. And now John clearly knows this is the guy. I've been telling everybody, get ready. Well, now I know who they were getting ready for. And that's why we start to see him shift to say, hey, this guy right here, he's the Lamb of God. Right here, this guy. He starts pointing out Jesus. Hey, this is the Son of God. And even he starts talking about baptism. And he's saying, I baptize you with water, but hey, somebody's coming that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we have a picture of baptism in our minds, right? We're going to do one together as a church in a couple, a couple weeks, right? We'll see people get dunked in water. And again, if you have not been baptized since you've put your faith in Christ, that's an important thing God wants you to do. Uh, talk to me or you can sign up online. It's not too late for you to, to join in that in a couple weeks. But we have that picture and we think baptism, yeah, it's that ceremony thing we do as a church. But literally the Greek word baptizo means to immerse or to place into or in more simple English to dunk, right? And so he's saying, hey, I'm baptizing you with water. I'm placing you. They get that image of him, you know, dunking people in the Jordan River, right? But he says, the one who's coming, he's going to dunk you into the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, that's something now we experience with, with salvation. That when we are saved, we are baptized. We are placed into Christ. We are placed into the Holy Spirit, and John's basically saying, hey, I'm telling people to repent. I'm telling them to turn from sin. I'm telling them to get dunked in water, but there's somebody coming after me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why was that important? And what in the world, the people that are listening to him, I mean, even us were like, what, what does that mean exactly? And what would the people that were listening to him have understood? Well, I think they would have been thinking of a specific passage in the Old Testament. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Or if you don't know where Ezekiel is, feel free to ask the person next to you or feel free to just listen along. But Ezekiel is a book that's written in a bad time for the nation of Israel. Most of the nation of Israel has already been carried off into exile. And Jerusalem is about to be totally wiped out and destroyed and the, and the temple destroyed. And basically you have to ask yourself, up until this point, this whole covenant with God and God giving them his commandments and his laws and the people of Israel following those laws, how's it going? Not good, right? And I mean, that's an understatement, right? Very not good. So not good that they've been sent away now that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's been that bad. And you kind of have to ask, what's, what's the problem? Well, why is it that they've got the law, but they can't do what it says? 
And we'll see a little bit of that here. Let's pick it up in verse 24, Ezekiel 36, 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, right? You're going to return from exile. And I think even to this day, now we've seen the nation of Israel put back on the map. But then he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. We already talked the Lamb of God cleansing us from sin. But then look at the next verse. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is if God is saying, hey, part of the pr problem is you've had the rules, you've had the laws, but you have a heart of flesh and therefore you haven't been able to do them. But a day is coming when I'm going to give you my spirit. And what my spirit is going to do, it's going to give you the power to obey me and to follow me and to do what I'm saying. Right, John's pointing people to repent, but he's saying, hey, somebody's coming that's actually going to give you the power to do that, to give you the power to live a different life. And so we see Son of God in this connection to the baptism of the Spirit, what I, the need that I want us to see, their point number two, Son of God, see the need for a new power source. Everybody needs that because on our own, we're all like the Israelites. Even if we know what God wants us to do, we can't do it. Because we have a bad heart and we need a new one that only God can give us through his spirit. Last year, my family and I, we moved into a new house. And, you know, the day, moving day was an exciting day for us. And, you know, the realtor calls, says, hey, everything is cleared. You can go pick up your key and start moving into the new house. And we're pumped up. We're excited, right? We're in our old place. We get as much stuff as we can, and we fill up my wife's car as full as it can possibly be. And then we fill up my car, and we're like, all right, the first load of stuff for the new house. Let's go. And my wife hops into the car, puts the key in the ignition, turns the key, and nothing happens. I mean, of all moments, you know, well, I mean, when is the mo time we've been most excited to get in the car and go somewhere in a long time, right? It's this. It's that moment that Nothing happens. And even somebody from the church had to come help, you know, they had to jump the, the battery. The car was parked in like an awkward place where it was tough to even get to with the jumper cables, right? So we had to get all that done. And then, you know, I drive my wife's car over there, leave the engine on, unload it, take it straight to Walmart because we need a new battery, right? We need a new power source for the car. That's something kind of that I see in ministry all the time. I, I see people come to me like, Pastor, my life's a mess, but hey, I'm going to turn it around, right? I'm going to stop doing the bad things. I'm going to start doing the good things. I know I've said that before, but this time I'm for real. Well, we're going to do this, right? And every time I'm listening and I'm concerned because I'm like, you know, it's going to be the same old story, the same old song and dance where you're going to get all this desire. Okay, I'm going to go do the right thing, but you're not because you can't. You need a new heart. And you can't do this by yourself. You need Jesus to give it to you. You need to look to him to give it to you. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus came not just to forgive your sins, he gave to change you so you live a different life than you did before because now you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And this is what Jesus does. He changes lives. And we see it 
perfect example of that in our passage in the very last verse. What's up with that whole Simon Peter name thing, right? Well, Jesus, he meets Peter, but what we, what we get is Peter's real name is Simon. He's the son of John. And Jesus says, hey, Simon, now you're going to be called Peter or, or Cephas. It says this two different languages, same, same word, and it means rock. Hey, hey you, you're going to be called the rock, right? Now let's review our memory of Peter as a disciple, right? Was he like a rock? Not so much, right? What, what is he most famous for? Denying Jesus three times, right? Not very rock-like, right? Very flaky, right? That, that's what he seemed like as a disciple. And he, he was all over the place a lot of the times. Well, okay, but then after Jesus rose again, then he was a new man. Really? After Jesus rises again, Peter's the one that says, hey, guys, I'm going fishing, right? I don't know about all this. I'm going back to what I knew before all this started. I'm going fishing, right? But then we see, as we flip from John to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus fulfills that promise of the Holy Spirit, and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit in that moment. Then what do we see Peter become? A rock. And he's preaching, calling people to turn from sin, and, and the authorities are threatening him, and instead of, oh, no, I'm scared, I'm going to deny Christ, he's standing firm because the Holy Spirit totally changed him as a person. And I want you to remember that. Every time you see Peter in the Bible, that was not his name. That was a nickname given him by Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, I'm going to start calling you that, but basically then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so you start living that. And that's what Jesus can do for every single person in this room. He can change your life. And that's something without him, it's not going to happen. We can't just drum up our own willpower to do it on our own. We need a new power source, and that is Jesus Christ. And he gives us the power, but then we see he, he gives us the direction. So we pick up the story, right? Next we see John, he, he gets two of his disciples, and he's like, hey guys, the Lamb of God, right there. And so these two disciples of John start following Jesus. And he says, hey, what do you want? And they say, rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? And they follow Jesus to wherever he's staying, and it says, it was about the 10th hour, which probably they started counting from the beginning of the day, sunrise. So probably late in the day, you get this picture. They go to wherever Jesus was saying, and they start talking. And they wrap up the afternoon there. And it goes into night there. And the first discipleship session of Jesus teaching these men is underway. And it's so powerful that one of them runs and grabs his brother and says, hey, you've got to come see Christ. This idea of Jesus being a rabbi and really the ultimate Teacher, again, it's not just, hey, this is what the rabbi meant. It's something that every single one of us needs. Talks about moving into that house. When we moved in, we had a completely unfinished backyard, right? We had a few, you know, pieces, a few pads of concrete right out the back door and then a bunch of dirt, and that was it. And we, I had this grandiose vision that I'm going to do this all myself, Right? I don't need to pay somebody else to come in here and do this, right? I'm going to do it myself. And I had, admittedly, delusions of grandeur, right? Of me someday sitting in this nice, mature backyard and being able to look around and say, I did that, right? I made this happen. Well, I start thinking about it, and I start trying to plan it out and, and do it, and I start realizing at every single step of the way, 
I need help because I don't know what I'm doing. Even just trying to map it all out, I need to call somebody from church and say, hey, you've kind of done this before. Uh, you know, what, what should I start thinking about? Or I look at my neighbor across the street and say, hey, where did you buy all this from? Or I call my friend in the neighborhood who didn't say, hey, how did you find your water line in the backyard? And it'd be like every time I'd make a step forward, I'd get stuck because it's like, what do I do now? I need help. I need someone to come and teach me. And eventually I realized what my wife had known all along <laughs> was that it was never going to happen, right? I was never going to do this. Probably just I didn't have the time or the know-how to do it. So I found somebody that, that could come in and do it for me. I had to you know, swallow a little bit of my pride and to get it done. But here's the thing. I would have needed somebody if I was going to do it. I would need somebody there guiding me every single step of the way. And if we're honest, that's how we should all feel about life. That to live life, we need somebody giving us direction every step of the way. And that is who Jesus is meant to be. He is the teacher. He is the rabbi to show us this is how you live life. Point number three, rabbi, we need to see the need for strong leadership. See the need for strong leadership. Because one of the things that helped me come to my senses um, and give up the dream was not just, okay, this is going to take more time and effort than I thought it was, right? I started to realize, hey, if I really do this on my own, I'm going to mess it up, right? I mean, it's going to be a problem if I do this on my own. And again, that, that's so true with life that I think all of us can relate to. There's times where it's like, hey, I'm going to figure it out by myself. And it's not just, oh, it takes time and effort, right? We end up screwing it up. We end up messing up life or messing up our family or whatever it might be. And that's why we need direction. We need Jesus, the one who created us, to say, this is how I designed it to be done. And we need to look to him. And this is what Jesus was, was known for. After he teaches what we call the Sermon on the Mount, kind of the longest recorded sermon we have, of Christ in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, at the end it says they were amazed because Jesus was unlike anybody else they'd ever seen because he taught as somebody who had authority. All the rabbis they were used to, you say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says, and Rabbi so-and-so says, and he says, and Jesus came along and started saying, hey, yeah, Moses said, but I say, right? Jesus was claiming this authority that no one else had ever done. And it's an authority we all need. And even for us as Christians, do you lean into this authority every single day, right? That's why Proverbs says that verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight, right? When we go through life thinking, hey, I got this, we're going to mess it up. But when we say, hey, God, you got this and I'm trusting you and I'm looking to you for leadership, well, that's the sweet spot of living. It's one of the reasons even why we talk about the reading the Bible being a get to and not a got to, right? It's not, oh yeah, what does Jesus want me to do? Oh, what does the Bible say? It's, you know, what does Jesus tell me I should do? Because I need the help, right? We live in a world that is running wild and it's falling apart. We need direction. And Jesus is the teacher that will give it. And when these guys interact with this teacher, Andrew, he's so excited, he goes and he grabs his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. So let's 
Let's conclude by talking about that last title, Messiah, or it says Christ. Again, same word, two different languages. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. Both the words literally mean anointed one. And in the Old Testament, we would learn about prophets, priests, kings, and all of them in one way or another would be anointed. And sometimes they're even referred to it, you know, as Christ or Messiah, almost think lowercase in a generic sense, as anointed ones. But the Jewish people started to pick up that, hey, there were some times where it was talking about an anointing, anointed one, and it seems like it's talking about like an ultimate anointed one, like the Messiah, the Christ that is going to come. I mean, one example would be 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, which says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Right? Oh, who's this anointed? And their curiosity started to be raised. Or Daniel chapter 9 starts to talk about this anointed one that's going to come, and even he's going to be cut off. And then we see other passages, we think of Isaiah, where it doesn't use the phrase anointed one, but it talks about this servant. It talks about this figure that is going to come. And that's what the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a Messiah, somebody who would be the ultimate anointed one, who would be a savior. And the anticipation was at a fever pitch when Jesus comes onto the scene. And most of them, honestly, are expecting and hoping and yearning for a military Messiah, right? He's going to come. He's going to be the king. He's going to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire so that we can be free, right? You have to imagine for Andrew and for the other disciples that, that sense of excitement. Hey, this guy that we've been waiting for for centuries, we found him. He's right here. That sense of fulfilled hope that they must have had. And again, that's, that's a need that we all have. We all need hope in our lives. And we need hope that's based on substance that's actually going to happen, not hope that's just based on whatever. So point number four is we think about the Messiah and what that meant for them and what it still means for us. See the need for real hope. See the need for real hope. One writer said, man can live 40 days without food, about three days without water, eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. And again, real hope, something that has substance to it. And that's what these guys now had. They had a hope that was fulfilled. The Messiah, he's here. We've been waiting and he's come. And we need that as well. And we need to see that we, we can have that same hope because we can say, hey, we know the Messiah. He has come. We're sure of that. And as sure as he's come once, he is coming again, is what the Bible teaches. The Messiah, he was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The ultimate person that was all three of those things in one person. That was Jesus Christ. But if you remember, the people in the time of Christ, they were focused on the king part. They wanted someone to come and set them free from the Romans. But what did Jesus' first trip to earth really focus on? Not so much the king part, but more the prophet part with his teaching from God and the priest part, him making a sacrifice for our sins. And we've seen him do that, but now we're still waiting for him to come back again and really fulfill the king part. And the Bible makes that crystal clear. 
even whatever different people believe as Christians about how that's all going to work, we, we all agree King Jesus is coming back. And he is going to reign. And that's a hope that we all need, the Bible teaches, to hold on to and to believe. And that's a hope that everybody needs. Because you, you want to start building, you, you know, some things you can agree on with an unbeliever. Uh, you probably can start agreeing, hey, look at the world. It seems pretty messed up, right? But yeah, it does. Most of us, we agree on that. We need hope. How's it going to get fixed, right? And we have to admit even, hey, nobody on the ballot this November is going to be that ultimate fixer, right? Let's do as good as we can, but we're waiting for King Jesus. He is coming back. He is our hope. Jesus Christ, he's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He's the Son of God who gives us the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher who gives us direction. And he's the Messiah that we're still waiting for, the hope that we can hold on to. And again, I want you to see all those titles. It's not just, hey, you hope you learned some fun things today. All these titles speak to our biggest needs. And if we really believe that Jesus is the cure, we're going to pass that on. Just like if you had the antibiotic for this coronavirus in your freezer, you'd look for a way to get it to the people that needed it, right? That's what should motivate us. And I still, again, as I'm looking at this room, I bet there's some of you right here in these seats today that you're realizing, I need forgiveness. I need new power. I need direction. And I need hope because I don't have any of it. And I want to point you to Jesus Christ. Today can be the day that you get right with him. And even just personally, as I think about today, January 26th, it was January 26th, 22 years ago, that God opened my eyes to see who Jesus really was and to give my life to Christ. And I'm praying today that God opened some of your eyes to see who Jesus really is, that he is the answer to your need, and that today would be the day that you follow Jesus Christ. And if that is you, I would encourage you, come talk to me after the service this morning or find somebody to talk to. Don't leave here today without dealing with that thought. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we praise you for Jesus Christ. He is the answer to what we need. He is the hope. He is forgiveness. He is new life and power and direction. God, that's why we sing things like there's none more beautiful and there's none more powerful than Jesus. Lord, may you lift his, high, his name high among us. God, I pray that you would open up doors for all of us this week to point other people to Jesus Christ. And as we see a huge influx of people coming into this valley to live here, God, that we would also see a revival of people coming into your kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. God, let us be a part of that. Open up doors for everybody in this room this week. And God, I do pray for those right here in this room this morning that they need to admit today that they need forgiveness or they need to admit today that they cannot do this on their own. They need new power that can only come from Christ. God, let today be the day of salvation for them. God, we love Jesus. We worship him. Thank you for your word, which teaches us about him God, and it's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, may the